Hey, John. Hey. Do you want to remind everybody about what's coming up in a few months? You mean the big Mormon Expression live broadcast? Live recording. Yeah, what's the difference? A recording is recorded, a broadcast is broadcasted. You mean if I'm not there, I can't hear it live? That's right. You can hear it later, though. You mean I have to be there? You have to be there if you want to participate in the live recording. But what if I ain't got no dough? It's not very expensive if you ain't got no dough. You just pony up about 5 or $10 and you're in. Uh, do I have to pay now? You can pay at the door, but you do need to reserve your tickets in advance. What happens if I don't reserve my tickets in advance? There's a possibility that you might show up and there won't be any room for you. Where's this uh, happening? It's at the University of Utah in the... What's the room called? The Crimson Room. The Crimson Room. So, reserve your tickets, be there or be square. Hey, what else do we need to talk about? We also need to remind everybody about the essay contest. It's a great opportunity to have your voice heard on Mormon Expression. We need recordings of no more than 10 minutes, and your story can be anything to do with Mormonism. Yep, and you'll have a chance to win $100. $100. Ding, ding. Entries need to be in by July 1st. We look forward to hearing them. episode of uh, Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Lars. I'm joined by a special guest, Alexander Zajcik. Is that right? Zajcik? That's, that's it. All right. Um, Z- Alexander is a freelance journalist, and you currently live in Brooklyn. Is that right? Yes. Yes, indeed. And you are the author of recently, I think it's out now, isn't it? Your, your book? It's out this week, yeah. Which is uh, Glenn Beck and the Triumph of Ignorance. Uh, so congratulations on publishing that. I know that's always a big feat. Yes, thank you very much. Feels yeah. good. So you've been writing for some time and uh, been kind of all around the world. Uh, um, maybe you can outline sort of sort of what you've been doing the last few years. Right. Well, uh, brief bio. I grew up in Boston, um, studied in uh, New England and Chicago, and then I pretty much left the country for about 10 years. Uh, worked out of Eastern Europe, the Balkans, Russia, South Asia, uh, a couple years in New York in there, and uh, recently returned to the States. And one of my first big projects here was to tackle Glenn Beck and the new sort of conservative grassroots activism that we've seen over the last year or two. Now, you are not a Mormon, right? Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> so, so what kind of spawned the interest in Glenn Beck? Well, um, it was really a discussion I was having with an editor about another project that sort of sparked my interest. I was pitching a book about India of all things, and we started talking about uh, Glenn Beck because he had just had his famous um, We Surround Them episode on Fox when he first sort of started talking about how much he loves his country and fears for it, broke down several times during the episode. It was an hour-long special called We Surround Them back in March of '09, and it was very bizarre television, and we were just sort of marveling at, at the weirdness of it. And uh, I went home that day still excited about this India book, but I started poking around um, the internet and noticing that there was this whole culture building around Beck, um, you know, meetups, uh, viewing parties, very 
you know, strange kind of um, fan base that was really active in all things Glenn Beck, more kind of Sarah Palin than Sean Hannity. So I went back and had another meeting with his editor and, and um, you know, we decided that he was going places and uh, took a chance and turned out we were right. Beck is, you know, one of the biggest stories in media of, of the decade. And here we are. Yeah, he's a fascinating guy and particularly fascinating to, to us coming from the Mormon side. And we'll explore some of that here, mm -hmm. here in a minute. Um, for, for those who aren't familiar with uh, uh, Glenn, he kind of started maybe in not ways you'd, you'd assume. Why don't, we, why don't we talk a little bit about his history and where he came from? Sure. Uh, Beck grew up in rural Washington State in uh, the rainy Pacific Northwest. He was a very precocious uh, child DJ. He started uh, practicing his radio voice in his bedroom as a, as a pre-adolescent, actually, and uh, was on the radio by age 13. And from there, it was one thing, you know, led to another. He forewent college to uh, work as a professional DJ. He was an itinerant top 40 DJ uh, throughout the 1980s and 90s before he moved into talk radio in 1999. Uh, specifically, he was active in a format that came into its own uh, in the early 1980s called the Zoo uh, Morning Radio Format, which was kind of a wacky, very outgoing, kind of rolling on-air party. It involved fake voices, comedy bits, sketches, a little bit of talk radio, shock jockey stuff. And Beck was kind of, um, you know, right in the middle of that movement in the, in the 80s and 90s. And that's sort of what formed him in, in entertainment. Yeah. And he's a convert uh, to the Mormon church. When uh, in all this did he um, find the Mormons? He converted to Mormonism in uh, 1999. He uh, was about to remarry. Um, his second marriage, he was getting serious with this woman, Tanya, who's, not, who's currently his wife, and she suggested to him that their relationship would only work if they found a church. So they went on a church tour, and um, for some reason or another, he talks about it a little bit in his autobiography, The Real America. He connected with the people at this um, Mormon church in Connecticut, and his kids liked it, and he decided to make that his new spiritual home. And it has been for the last 11 years. Now, the, the question's been um, risen before. What came first, the chicken or the egg? Was, was, Ble was Beck attracted to the church because of the church's conservatism? Or did he sort of convert to that also as part of his conversion? I don't know if he was attracted to that at first. Probably, I would say no, because his political... Uh, his political self was not really formed at this point. He was basically a non-political top 40 DJ about to begin a transformation into a conservative fire breather. That hadn't happened yet. He really seems to have been attracted by just kind of the niceness of the people he met there, the fact that his kids felt comfortable there, one of whom had, uh, had special needs issues. And he just, something clicked. He felt a warmness at this particular um, you know, community. And he, um, he converted. I don't think the politics were, was a reason for that, although it clearly became a pretty good fit once he was in the church and started to become more conservative. There was that, you know, more conservative tradition within Mormonism, uh, which, which I'm sure we'll talk about, that he sort of gravitated towards, gravitated towards and, and felt an affinity for once he became aware of it. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh to the sort of Mormonism that he was attracted to, that stuff that dates back to Cleon Skousen, we'll get into him in just a minute, is is still alive and vibrant in the church. 
but it's on the margins. I mean, it's not, I, I would dare say even the majority of Mormons today, the younger sect might not even know who Cleon Skousen is. And, you know, they're aware of, of Ezra Taft Benson, of course, as their leader of the church, but not necessarily as intimately involved with all their politics. Now, everybody above 30 knows that stuff, but it's interesting that he's connected to that once he got into the church, because that's, that's, that's not what the missionaries present, you know, first thing on, in the discussions is the old um, conservative politics. Right, right. Yeah, I, to the extent that younger Mormons know about Skousen today, um, if they're conservative, it's probably uh, in good part due to Beck's efforts to promote Skousen's um, works, particularly the 5,000-year leap, which was published uh, for the first time in 1982, which is Skousen's main sort of constitutional uh, work. Yeah, and, you know, inside Utah, especially in Utah County, you know, sort of the seedbed of conservative Mormonism, you know, there's been the Eagle Forum and Gail Razika who've been pushing that stuff for quite some time. So it's always stayed there on the forefront. You know, they run the billboards and they influence um, Utah conservative politics. But I would dare say that your average, you know, Washington State or, you know, New York Mormon just doesn't get involved in that much. So I think one of the things that Glenn has really done is pulled that back out of the Utah County shadows and kind of pushed it in everybody else's face. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was actually talking to uh, Gail Ruzica just the other day for a piece I'm writing about something called the Patrick Henry Caucus, which is this um, state's rights, although they prefer the term state sovereignty organization that um, has aligned with uh, the Eagle Forum and has actually had its biggest profile boosts on the Glenn Beck program uh, Beck's had them on a couple times, and they're sort of like the political manifestation of this Skousenite tradition. Um, you know, deeply conservative, very religious, and um, very, very hostile to the idea of activist uh, central government. So let's talk a little bit about um, Skousen, because, you know, I say you can't understand Glenn Beck unless you understand um, Cleon Skousen. Uh, maybe give us a little background into Skousen. Okay, well, uh, and I don't want to patronize some of your listeners who no doubt are more familiar with the intimate details of his life than me, but very, in very broad strokes, he was an uh, American citizen born in a Canadian frontier town um, and studied law in Washington in the 1930s, worked for a New Deal farm agency before working for the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, and returned to Salt Lake City to um, be the chief of police in the 1950s. Had a very uh, controversial term as chief of police, was ultimately um, let go by uh, Lee Bracken for being a little bit too zealous in the enforcement of uh, morals, as, uh, as Skousen you know, interpreted good morals, everything from you know, banning pinball machines to raiding card games to uh, you know, ranting against the evils of, of rock and roll. And this kind of thing. And after his tenure as chief of police, he became very active on the uh, anti-communist, extremist sort of lecture circuit. He was uh, touring with the John Birch, Birch Society, the anti-communist um, crusade, you know, with guys like Fred Schwartz and um, Robert Welch. He was, you know, a pretty major figure on this circuit that was, um, you know, coming into its own in, in the late 1950s, early 60s. He wrote a book called The Naked Communist, which purported to give a true and honest portrait of the global communist conspiracy, although he actually had very little um, knowledge about global communism or Marxism or anything else. He greatly overstated his uh, expertise and experience with such matters um, 
as uh, as the record his record with the FBI shows, and also just the the poorly uh, researched and sourced nature of his books make clear. Um, and towards the end of the 1960s, he sort of transformed into a proto New World Order theorist. He wrote a book called The Naked Capitalist, which said uh, it sort of updated his original naked communist thesis by saying, yes, there's still a leftist conspiracy, but it's being directed not by Moscow, but rather by the lords of finance in New York and London. And basically said the danger of a one world government um, you know, coming into place at the behest of the Rockefellers and uh, the Kissingers and you know, the Council on Foreign Relations was the real threat. And this sort of pushed him pretty far out of bounds. And um, even his allies within church leadership like Taft Benson sort of found themselves struggling to defend um, Skousen's, you know, high profile um, in this in this weird conspiracy culture of the 1970s. Now, and, yeah, sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. I was just, just to bring it up to date. And then in the 1980s, he, moved, he went to Washington with his, uh, his Freeman Institute, now the National Center for Constitutional Studies, and became um, the sort of Mormon representative of the Christian Right Coalition with, you know, that was being brought together by Jerry Falwell and Reverend Sun Young Moon. Um, and basically, with books like The 5,000-Year Leap, attempted to um, you know, steer American history and constitutional studies in a very sort of uh, Christian, some would say theocratic direction. Now, Skousen's book, um, The Naked Communist, that was actually a crossover book and went outside of the Mormon sort of walls, didn't it? Yeah, it was a huge seller. It's, according to Skousen, it sold over a million copies. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just Mormon groups, but all the sort of anti-communist groups around the country ate it up. It was, it was wildly successful. Yeah, and uh, uh, Ezra Taft Benson famously in a Mormon conference one year held it up above his head and said that every LDS person should own this book. So, I mean, there was obviously ringing endorsement. And, you know, we have the period after Benson was Secretary of Agriculture where he was really in bed with the, the John Birchers. So, so you know, the, you, you have the, the Skousen link to um, Ezra Taft Benson, which, of course, gave it legitimacy inside the, um, inside the Mormon leadership. And at the time, um, David O. McKay was the president of the church who was very sympathetic to Ezra Taft Benson and his John Birch ideas, although he never was as public about it. And then, of course, you had other players like Ernest Wilkinson down at BYU, who's running the same sort of stuff that Skousen was doing in Salt Lake City down on the BYU campus. You know, the, the, the sort of student Gestapo, you know, watching in and doing all that sort of moral policing. So, mm-hmm. so I think you had a real uh, combination of these sort of things, not just from Skousen. Sure. No, yeah, and it's worth mentioning that the, the, the stuff that was going on in the BYU campus, the moral policing, the espionage, uh, a lot of that was conducted by the second generation of Skousens and Bensons. Uh, they worked together out of the Utah chapter of the John Birch Society to, to monitor professors and students uh, at that campus. Yeah, you know, and it's still there to some extent. You know, Reed Benson, um, Ezra Taft Benson's son, is still on faculty, and there's still a lot of sympathy um, among some quarters for, for the good old days under Ernie Wilkinson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so, so Skousen, um, you know, ha- has these, these sort of ideas that have been sort of percolating around. When does Beck first start picking up and running with that sort of Skousen theme? The first mention of Skousen's work in Beck's work appears in 2002, the first edition of The Real America, Beck's first book. And that comes in the middle of that book where there's a chapter that consists of nothing but uh, a list called Communist Goals of 1963. 
And this was something that was read in Congress by a um, uh, representative who didn't really ascribe it to an author, but it was well known to have been written by Skousen. And Beck also does not identify Skousen as the author of this list of communist goals, but clearly he knew who, who wrote it. He must have been given it, received it by a, by a Mormon source. So that's the first sign of, of any sort of awareness or um, contact with Skousen. And then in his next book, uh, an inconvenient book of 2007, Beck is actively promoting the naked capitalist. He's calling it a must read for anyone trying to understand the Council on Foreign Relations, America's open border, quote unquote, open border politicians and, and agenda, this kind of thing. And in 2007, 2008, he really sort of kicked it into high gear. He started promoting not only the naked capitalist, but also the naked communist. Repeatedly on his uh, radio shows, he, there was a period in 2008 where Pretty much any guest who was on was, you know, Beck was raving about Skousen and the naked, naked communist. Um, and then, of course, in more recent years, you have his uh, his you know, pushing of the five thousand year leap. He gave it out on his on his uh, television show in two thousand and nine. Every student, every um, person in his studio received a copy under his chair, sort of like Oprah giving out keys to a new Civic or something. <laughs> and um, you know, he's been. He wrote the introduction to a new, wrote the forward to a new edition of that book being published by um, Skousen's uh, family. So he's been, you know, at the head of the charge of sort of bringing about a larger audience for Skousen's work, which didn't exist at all before Beck started promoting this stuff. I guess what I find so incredible is that Cold War fear of communists is, is still alive. Uh, um and that it plays outside of Mormonism. I, you know, isn't, isn't that over? Is there really that big of an audience for this sort of stuff? Apparently there is. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, it was a surefire, you know, uh, message for a long time. And uh, apparently you can dust it off and uh, accuse people of being, you know, Marxists in 2010 and have it resonate. Um, you know, the, the problems with that, um, are you know well documented on sites that sort of make a made a cottage industry out of you know making fun of Beck, which is very tempting and very easy, but it's less <laughs> funny that you have millions and millions of people who are eating it up and who don't seem to understand why it's absurd. Well, you know the the line the communist the anti communist um, propaganda played so well in Mormonism because of Mormonism's sort of exclusionary view of the world, you know, that we're the true church, and there's the false church, and there's God, and there's the devil, and it's in very stark, stark terms. And the communists just fit that mold so well for them that it just sort of was harm was in harmony with what they were saying. And I can see for those conservatives who have lost that sort of apparent um, enemy, you know, because the communists were real. They spoke our language. You could point to them. You could find them on a map. Terrorism is a tactic, and it's really hard to kind of get behind that as, as much. So I, I can see why that, that sort of still plays out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Although it should be mentioned that, um, you know, he's Beck, um, if not some of the, the church leaders, although some of them clearly have, ha did attempt to use Islamic um, terrorists as, a, as the new sort of stand-ins for the communists. I'm, I, I'm not terribly familiar with, with the myths in, uh, or the storyline of, of, of the Mormon, the Book of Mormon, but I do believe that there's the, the dark sort of side, the conspirators, um, I forget what they're called, but there was one speech I saw in which a, a church president basically said that the new version of this, you know, group from the Book of Mormon is, you know, the 
the Al Qaeda terrorists. So I think there was an attempt um, at a pretty high level to sort of substitute communists for for the Islamic terrorists. Yeah, in the Book of Mormon, the group is they're called the Gadiant Robbers, and they're sort of right. a, a secret society that lives in the hills and comes down and raids. And and yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's easy to paint whatever brown people you want as 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 those sort of vague threats out there. And um, yeah, I guess that red that rhetoric is still alive. I, you know, I I do want to say that in in my observation in the church today, I, I think in 1963 you would have found that most Mormons along the the Mormon corridor, you know, through the through the West, would have resonated with the teachings of Skousen and Benson and all that, and that would have been generally accepted. I think there's quite a few Mormons that do, but I don't think it has the same punch that it did. Uh, there's a lot of Mormons who who will publicly disavow Beck and his methodology today. Yeah, no, clearly there's a there's a quite a strong reform or or I don't know what you'd call it, um, you know, just liberal kind of current. I did a show, a national public radio show based out of Salt Lake City a few months ago, and a lot of the calls that came in, I don't know if this was just reflecting the radio station or, or what, but a lot of them were people saying, you know, I wish I wish Beck had found God somewhere else. He's an embarrassment. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't like the fact that he's giving, you know, my faith a bad name. That seemed to be a dominant um, theme in the callers. Yeah, that's true. But I think it's time for us to turn to sort of the other uh, theme here, which is there's something about Beck that's distinctively Mormon, um, that he has really, you know, in the 10 or 11 years he's been a, a member, really picked up on some key Mormon methodologies, particularly, I think you call it um, the crying conservative. You want to talk a little bit about, about that? Right. Well, I again, I don't want to presume to be as, as familiar with some of this stuff firsthand as, as yourself or your listeners, but in, in researching Beck's crying, I talked to a lot of Mormon scholars, um, people who write about cultural anthropology from a Mormon perspective and study Mormon rituals and rhetoric. And what I heard from a lot of them was that Beck's uh, very stylized emotion seems to mirror pretty well this um, this this ritual known as bearing testimony in, in which um, members of a ward house gather and um, you know bear their testimony to each other and often become uh, you know wrought with emotion it's a very emotional moment of um, kind of community and and Beck's highly stylized performances seem to be uh, a case of him who was already emotional to begin with sort of appropriating this ritual which is also in some cases as i understand it an expression of authority and um you know access to higher knowledge for the purposes of um entertainment and the purposes of pushing his um his political views uh to an audience who's receptive to this sort of mode of communication yeah uh, you have it right um the testimony meetings you know which happen once a month where any member can walk up to the pulpit almost sort of like a quaker meeting um there there's it's very common for people to you know show emotion and that's how they show the spirit the fact that they're being moved upon by the holy ghost or whatever but and you 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 hinted at the second half which is i think more important one you know the mormon church is very patriarchal and very authoritarian and you have the the bishops uh, you know, of the local congregation who get up there in their white shirts, just like businessmen, and run the whole show. Mm-hmm. And it, and because they do it in such a, a, you know, board of directors sort of style, that stylized pause and weep is a, is a, is a very common motif among those guys to show that they're, you know, being moved upon. Because otherwise, the 
the way they conduct the meetings, the way they talk is not very emotionally driven. The, the Mormon services are very prescribed. They're very orderly. And, th and that's become this shorthand way for people to say that they're, they have this, the spirit. Yeah. And I think there was a, a really great instance of this. I think it was two years ago at um, Mountain Meadows Massacre site. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the Mountain Meadows Massacre. Um, uh, a lot of years ago, there was a, the, the Mormon militants attacked a, a wagon train heading out to California, and there's been back and forth about this site. But they okay. sent um, Henry Eyring, who is, of course, a member of the Twelve, and he's the best, the best at that sort of pause and weep. And, you know, very much that sort of thing where he pauses and gets a little bit misty-eyed and expresses his emotion that way. And I think Glenn has really, really tapped into that. And anybody who's spent time in a Mormon church is immediately going to see it and mm -hmm. immediately going to um, recognize what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I think you mentioned this in one of the articles I was looking at. It's something that actually George Bush <laughs> did a little, although not as melodramatically as... as uh, as Beck, but he would do the um, sort of pull his uh, lips in and do the pregnant pause. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't have to just be a Mormon communication thing. It's also uh, just, you know, anyone who's very religious is going to sort of be more sympathetic to this idea of, you know, gut knowledge over, you know, reason and logic and sort of mind knowledge. Um, you know, like the idea that you can feel something in your heart or your, or your gut to know it to be true and it can move you, the spirit moving you. And then, and once that's established, no amount of fact or sort of, you know, uh, liberal logic is going to do much to dislodge someone from, if not being convinced, at least, you know, feeling much more sympathy for the person who, who's, you know, in touch with some sort of higher truth that they can, they can relate to. Yeah, definitely. I think that's something that Beck has mastered that shutting down rational discourse by relying on, you know, this things, you know, and yeah. that's a very key word, you know, Mormons express belief and testimony using the word. I know, I know this, I know that. And I think Beck has, has played that card very well. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's what I think a lot of his liberal critics don't understand. They just, they watch it and they see something completely different. They just, they, they aren't hearing the same, you know, frequency. Uh, and that, that's why you have this just absolutely yawning gap of comprehension between people who, get back and like him and can relate to what he's doing because they maybe, you know, see the same thing on Sunday versus those who just can't relate to it. They're, they have no sort of reference points to understand what's going on. So another interesting question that I have, and maybe you can uh, hypothesize about it. I, I don't see any Beck bump in church membership, meaning I don't, I don't think there's been any like rise in baptisms for the Mormon church because of Glenn Beck out there. But I do see that he's popular among the conservatives. Why is it that this methodology is working for Beck when it's not, not really working for the church? Right. Well, um, this is a question I probably get more than anything else since I started <laughs> talking about Beck and, and doing publicity for this book. And, uh, you know, I wish I could... Um, I wish I could tell you why Beck's appeal um, is so irresistible and what exactly people see in him. I, I, I'd be less comfortable um, even trying to talk about the, the church's problems in, in uh, growing its membership. <laughs> but as for Beck, I can tell you what people say. I can't tell you uh, I've seen it, I mean, from their point of view completely, because I, I still, even after thinking and watching this guy for a year, am at a loss to understand how people cannot see his, you know, profound fraudulence, I think. But 
uh, people, what they tell you is this guy is funny. It's one of the first things they'll tell you. He's so entertaining. Okay, that almost comes before the fact, which is number two, that they see him as incredibly brave. They genuinely believe Beck when he tells them that his life is on the line and that he is sacrificing his family's happiness and the things he has to put up with to speak the truth, you just can't even imagine. They really think of him as like this martyr for the truth, one of the only guys out there who's standing up and calling it as it is for them, the little guy. And it's that combination of bravery and just being an entertaining person in this universe of conservative commentary um, that makes him him unique and his willingness to, to really aim low to go for that gut connection and just put it all on the line and make a fool out of himself is something that he's been rewarded for. Uh, and, you know, within that conservative universe, I, I can I guess I can see why people would find Beck entertaining. I mean, you know, compared to Sean Hannity, who, you know, might as well be, you know, a stick in the mud. Um, you know, Beck is more fun to watch. He has the props, you know, he's self-deprecating, he says wacky things, um, you know, and these, you know, his fan base is, is not exactly, you know, watching the Chris Rock HBO special. They're not <laughs> flipping back and forth. So in their world, I think Beck maybe truly is entertaining. Although if your, you know, world's a little wider, his entertainment value shrinks considerably pretty fast. Yeah, I... I, you know, I admit that I'm not a conservative, so I have trouble getting him um, in that he always seems to be sort of smirky, and I can't tell when he's um, putting us on and when he's serious. You know, all of the recent book cover where he's wearing a Nazi uniform, I, I just, I don't, I don't get that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a gimmick, it's a, it's a, um, it's a prop, it's, it's a shtick, you know, I mean, who, what other... Mark Levin is not going to put on that uniform. He's not going to be <laughs> Colonel Clank. Um, you know, so Beck does it. And it's, you know, it's part of his, um, you know, his camp sort of shtick. Uh, he puts himself out there. It's just another example of that. And they love him for it. Um, he's, he's the rodeo clown who makes him laugh. While also, you know, lately especially, pulling back and, you know, positioning himself as a dead serious, if not world historical uh, movement leader. He's going to rescue the Republic in its dire hour of need now now i i mentioned um uh henry iring from the quorum of the 12 a minute ago and i have no doubt that he is 100 percent sincere mm -hmm. now you know beck does this crying routine H how sincere is beck i mean um it seems to me he might be faking it a little bit yeah i don't think there's any question um i would never question uh or find it very hard to question the authenticity of someone who's doing a very private or community, um, you know, based performance or, or, you know, testimony that, that is, you know, meant for a certain number of people. But when you go on national television and, uh, which doubles as a massive advertisement for your products and Beck is always at least half, you know, never more than half an inch away from the next self promotion. It's very hard to take that kind of, um, you know, completely overwrought emotion seriously at all, especially when he does it um, so predictably at the same points. And uh, he's been caught, you know, practicing it. I've talked to his colleagues at various points of his career who say, yeah, he's faking it. We know it because <laughs> we'd see him do it in between commercials. We'd see him, you know, I mean, it's, it's well known that that's not real, but apparently um, most of his fans don't really care for whatever reason. They just don't care. Now let, let's talk about the business mind of, of, of Glenn Beck. I mean, like a lot of other conservative um, commentators, he's not afraid to push a product. 
No, he's absolutely uh, and almost admirably uh, without the capability to feel shame. Um, <laughs> I think this is probably the most important aspect to understanding Beck. I mean, before he sees himself as an entertainer, before he sees himself as a, as a Mormon or a Christian or a patriot, he sees himself as a businessman. Um, he is very proud of his uh, empire that he's built up. And he's constantly linking to the Forbes cover story about him in his newsletter. And he was always thinking big. Uh, he always wanted to be syndicated, even back when he was doing Top 40 Radio. He wanted to be a national brand. Uh, he's always been very canny when it comes to publicity, self-promotion, um, you know, very aware of, uh, of getting there and making it and being a national entertainment brand. So I think that is ultimately... Um, what drove him to get to where he is and, and what drives him still more than anything else. And, you know, he's brilliant at it. He's, you know, he's a great business mind. He knows his audience. He knows media. He's constantly pushing the envelope in directions. No one else in, in his business is, um, you know, just look at his latest website feature, the uh, extreme insider program. It's just like bizarro sort of max headroom stuff almost. And um, the cult of Beck is, you know, just keeps growing and, and diversifying and he's at the center of it. Yeah, and that's another theme um, from Mormonism that I that I see a connection to. Of course, Mormonism has a long uh, uh, history of being involved in multi-level marketing and mm -hmm. a lot of fraud. You know, a lot of a lot of that sort of um, trust-based fraud coming out of Utah. And you know, a lot of commentators have pointed out the connection between um, that sort of community-based trust and that reliance on emotion. But Utah is heavy into that sort of thing. And I see the the echoes of multi-level marketing in the the way Beck approaches his fan base. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, he's constantly pushing the next product, building hype for the next event. It always is going on, a three-dimensional chess of marketing. Absolutely. Now, speaking of the next, uh, the next thing, let's talk a little bit about the plan. Mm. Um, this is his latest gig that he's trying to hype. Yes, yeah, it's more than a gig. It's a uh, major event in the history of the country, man. <laughs> August 28th at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial, Glenn Beck is headlining an event called Restoring Honor. Uh, and it is time to coincide with the anniversary of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Yeah, I that's mean, the that's the chutzpah there is to do it on the 28th. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if it wasn't true, it would be hard to believe it. Uh, but it, it is true, and uh, Beck is going to be delivering a speech that uh, I personally can't wait <laughs> to hear. Um, that's going to be his MLK moment, one that he's been you know, fiending for a long time. Uh, during his Rally for America tour in 2003, he very much wanted to speak in D.C., but the local affiliate, the local Queer Channel affiliate, canned it. They thought it was over the top. Um, and then, of course, during the 9-12 March, Fox Cop kept him in New York. They wouldn't let him go because they were catching so much heat for promoting the, uh, the 9-12 March as it was. But, uh, yeah, he's going to um, lay out a plan, a 100-year plan to save America, which he's already done a little bit on Fox. He's talked about um, you know, the need for an 11% regressive flat tax. Uh, he's talked about the need to destroy most federal agencies and slash social spending and uh, reduce military... America's military presence worldwide, which is a new thing for him. He's only recently started to have something like a consistent libertarian viewpoint. For a long time, it was all over the place. It was libertarian economics mixed with like neoconservative foreign policy, mixed with you know very devout you know Christian morals. He he wanted to be a libertarian, but he didn't understand that meant 
being cool with sex and drugs and not moralizing. <laughs> <laughs> and it meant not wanting to bomb foreign nations on flimsy pretexts. He didn't get that for years. He kept saying, I'm a libertarian, I'm a libertarian. But he thought that was just about cutting taxes. It took a while for him to slow down and have it explained to him in uh, you know, probably picture format that it wasn't that simple. Yeah, what I find most interesting about the plan is he seems to be um, couching it in almost prophetic terms. I mean, he's using some inside Mormon keywords that normally just the, the high brethren use. Um, mm -hmm. Such as? Uh, um, just the, the talk of... of so, so in Mormonism, you know, there's the concept of personal revelation, which is important, you know, that the, the Holy Ghost, that God can talk to us and give us guidance in, in, the, in our lives. But because Mormonism is such an authoritarian church, it's, it has to be clear that you're not allowed to receive any sort of... Um, revelation for let's say your local congregation and that's only the bishop can do that and of course only the general authorities can do it for the world so as beck is talking about this in terms of that god has been talking to him and using that sort of hinting i i think it's almost problematic for the guys in salt lake city because then the question comes well why is god talking to glenn beck and not <laughs> and not yeah. the guys um downtown Right, right, sure. Yeah, I mean, I could, uh, for any religion, I think that they would probably be, be causing problems because he definitely isn't, has been using prophetic language. I mean, he's been talking as if he's Moses. The 100-year plan is nothing but God's plan for America being, you, you know, using him as a, as a, a vehicle. Um, and uh, he's been very explicit about that. Right, and that, that um, sort of thing in a Mormon tradition taps into, you know, not only the biblical people we know like Moses, but, you know, some characters from the Book of Mormon like like uh, Nephi, who were very much where God used them as a reformer over other people around them. Mm -hmm. Right. And Salt Lake City has got to be nervous about that. I mean, they, he's kind of a loose cannon in that way. That's interesting. Has anyone uh, written about that? No, it's your next. It's your next. Yeah, article. May, maybe I'll use you as, uh, as, as my first source. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah. So um, yeah, there, yeah, there's 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 that that language element and that that goes to I, I think when you talk to Mormon apologists and Mormon intellectuals, they're all real nervous about Beck because they, they see that sort of, it's almost a lot of the fundamentalist breakoffs, you know, the polygamists and sort of people you see on Big Love. They all use that same sort of language too, you know, because it's easy to, once you have that personal revelation to say, oh, well, this church is in apostasy also, since that's the foundation of Mormonism, and then put yourself in that, in that, um, position. And that's where it goes back to the question, is this all just a big put on for, for Glenn Beck? I mean, is he going to come out of the Lincoln Memorial with a red nose on? And I don't think anybody's for sure. Yeah, I, I don't think so. I think he's been trying to move away from that. He's actually tried to say, I'm not, no longer a rodeo clown. I'm now, you know, I'm now a serious major figure in American politics and uh, possibly even more than that. I don't think he's going to come out with, with the red nose. Whether he's, it's for real or not is another question. Um, about that, I have my doubts. Um, I tend to think, you know, again, like I said, much more important than the New World Order to Beck is his new bank statement. And <laughs> I think that's the main driver there. Whether he believes this stuff, I can't claim to know, but um, I have my doubts. Well, and, and, you know, this goes to that, is he just warming things over again? You know, like his Christmas sweater presentation. I bring that up because I, I think of a, a, a friend I had that I was talking to the other day, and she was going to one of the movie showings um, where the, I guess he was running around local theaters showing a movie of his presentation. I don't know. I don't, I don't follow it that well. But um, 
I got the sense from her that she really wasn't into all this sort of um, scowls and stuff. It's just she resonated with his folksy delivery and his sort of common sense conservatism. And I think that's the part that that, um, Glenn's really great at repackaging things that have already been proven inside Mormonism. You know, the 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 parallels have been drawn between, you know, his Christmas sweater and the old Christmas box, which was such a success coming out of the, the Mormon culture. Right. Yeah. If, if she was going to see the Christmas sweater, it wasn't the folksy wisdom she was connecting to so much more as that uh, sort of sentimentalist tradition within Mormon culture that, yeah. that I wrote a little bit about in that story um, that, that we, we mentioned earlier. Um, and that's something I'd be interested to, you know, maybe um, hear you know, your perspective on um, if that, if you know, sort of where that comes from and, and how, um, you know, how that came to be. Uh, you mean the s- sentimentality sort of yeah, thing? Yeah, I mean, all these films and movies are just like, they're all like made-for-TV schlock. And, I mean, it's fine to have, like, kids' movies with that kind of thing. I, I mean, that's fine. After-school specials or something, we all, you know, that, that has its place. But, I mean, you know, at the risk of offending anyone, I, I, I did some, you know, searching for a product of Mormon culture that was a little bit stronger than that and a little bit outside those established narratives. And I really struggled to find them. And I'm just wondering how that sort of calcified, like really um, just you know, sugary, sweet, congealed sentimentalism came to be the sort of dominant mode of um, art in, in, for, for religion. That's a great question. I don't pretend to know the full answer. I, I would say that it's a byproduct of the anti-intellectualism that, that you've pointed out in some of your articles. When when the culture is, is, is as you know, rigidly controlled. Um, I, it was once said by somebody, I can't remember, that you'll never see a great work of art come from Mormonism because if you did, the the producer of the of the work of art would automatically be excommunicated. You know, art always comes from the fringes and right. great literature and great plays and great, all that kind of stuff. You, you're, you're exploring some of the borders. So when you institute a culture like that, what do you have left? All you yeah. have left is the schmaltz. Um, because you can't say anything offensive. You can't imply anywhere in official or semi-official Mormon stuff that somebody has done anything wrong. I mean, you you couldn't imply that somebody's been drinking or anything like that unless it's just to prove a really negative point or unless it's something they overcome, you know? So characters have to be one-dimensional because they can't show any of that that complexity. And then, you know, a lot of the stuff that I, I know you referenced, you know, like the cypher in the snow and a lot of that stuff that came out of BYU in the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. there, there's that real sort of paternalism that, you know, I saw when I was a student at BYU where they, you're an adult, but they treat everybody like children, you know, yeah. because, because no one's to be trusted. And that includes yourself. If you talk about that sentimentality you hear in, in the ward houses, it's very common for people to say things like, without the church, I don't know where I'd be. So installed in that is a sort of distrust of the one of one's own self because it's not proven. If you've never had a beer, if you've never, you know, even kissed anybody but your wife, you can be um, installed with this fear that if you encounter the world, you're just going to fall off the deep end, you know? Yeah, gotcha. Now, I, I guess one of the last things I want to ask about for me, I, I don't, not really clear. What is Beck's connection to the Tea Party? Of course, the Tea Party is getting a lot of press these days. Yeah, well, he's he and Sarah Palin are the two most revered and probably influential figures in that scene. 
Um, Beck was tinkering with the 912 project before the Tea Party thing really took off in 2009. And when it did, he reconfigured the 912 project very quickly to sort of position it to become a, a major organization uh, that could benefit from this, this new sort of grassroots mood. Originally, it was supposed to be a uh, sort of Christian, um, you know, end of days preparation society. He, wanted, he was talking about the 912 project being about, you know, people preparing for the, for the crisis, start stocking your sellers, be prepared to be a good Samaritan when people are in need because the whole thing's about to hit the fan. And then Rick Santelli gave his speech on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which triggered this whole, you know, anti-tax fervor on the right. Beck suddenly started talking about the 912 Project as a, um, you know, a constitutional movement for smaller government and uh, states' rights, and, you know, it was still a little bit of, you know, faith in God and self-reliance element, but it, it suddenly was much more in tune with what was being said at, at tea parties uh, and tax protests. And he, you know, pivoted very hard, and uh, it worked. By the time the major protest happened on September 12th of uh, 2009 in Washington, the most common signs you saw, along with ungrammatical, you know, <laughs> accusations about the president being a you know Stalinist or something was you know Glenn Beck Sarah Palin for president in 2012 and you know we love Glenn Beck he he had already established in less than a year his primacy within uh, the most diehard Tea Party activists. Well, and we saw um, on the home front just recently where um, Bob Bennett lost his Senate seat after 18 years, basically on a Tea Party. Um, sort of revolt in the um, primaries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, like I mentioned earlier, that group, the Patrick Henry Caucus, which has emerged as a huge force in Utah politics in the last year, uh, very much a Glenn Beck-associated uh, phenomenon. They've been on the Beck show. They represent activists who idolize Beck. They themselves are you know, Beck fans. They, they sort of reiterate the same talking points and represent the same sort of small government um, states' rights message, and that Bennett basically lost his seat. You know, the first senator to, to lose his seat like that in seventy years to a coalition of um, Beck allies. Yes, absolutely. Now, uh, this would be pure speculation, but um, you know, Mitt Romney still has his eye on the seat. How, how is Beck and the the Tea Party movement and that connection to Mormonism going to play out? Uh, the presidency? Yeah. I don't know. Beck has historically been kind of cool on Romney. Um, he, he, he's been friendly. He's never trashed him the way he has, you know, John McCain or some other major national figure Republicans. Um, not as much as you think he would, given Romney's, um, you know, former liberalism and, or at least, you know, centrism in, in Massachusetts as governor. But Beck, I think, is sort of hesitant to uh, embrace anyone too strongly at this point. And he's certainly aware of the fact that people will accuse him of backing Romney if he did, simply because of the, um, the Mormon connection. So I think he's aware of that, and he's sort of being cool uh, and friendly at his distance right now, and he's not going to really uh, embrace a candidate until he knows exactly uh, what's at stake and, and who it's going to be. So what do you think's next for, uh, for, for Beck? Do you think um, the plan is going to fizzle out, or do you think he's going to continue to grow, or, or what's the future here? Uh, if you had asked me 
a year ago, I probably would have said he's going to fizzle out, but you know, he, he just keeps continuing to uh, surprise people, and um, the Tea Parties don't seem to be fizzling out. I think tonight, what happens in these primaries will give us a sense of exactly how they're able to translate their energy into political power. Um, there's a couple races that are pretty much, um, uh, what's the word I want, um, test cases uh, for uh, for the Tea Party model of you know pressuring establishment candidates from the right and running their own candidates. So we'll see. I mean, I, I, I think he'll certainly have a success in August. I think a lot of people are going to show up for this Restoring Honor rally. Um, his radio numbers are strong. His TV numbers have dipped a little bit lately, but, you know, his new book is almost certainly destined to be a bestseller weeks before it, you know, publishes. So I don't see him fizzling out too soon, whether he's around in five years, 10 years. Uh, I don't know, but he certainly painted himself into a bit of a corner because he can't continue to shock and be the center of attention. You just, you just can't, you have to keep upping the ante. And at some point you run out of uh, chips. So whether he's able to sort of take a back seat and relax for a bit, um, you know, since he sort of had this meteoric burst of, um, you know, success into this national status is, you know, remains to be seen how he handles it. I don't know, but it'll certainly be interesting. Yeah, it's the it's the um, prophet of doom's dilemma always is that you're always mm-hmm. predicting the, the fall of the world and it, it, it never falls, of course. And so you have to keep uh, you have to keep figuring out how to re- repackage that image, that message. Exactly. You know, but the Mormons have done it pretty good for, for 175 years. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, it's interesting. I was talking to some others uh, just recently, and we were observing that since the fall of the um, of the Berlin Wall, you know, in 89, that a lot of the um, the the rhetoric around the, the apocalypse and the end of times is kind of toned down. But you see a lot of that um, starting to heat back up again. And I, I think Glenn might be riding that sort of wave. Uh, let's see if they can sustain it. Yeah. I, I think either way, the way the Tea Party has positioned themselves, he wins because the best thing they can do is be a minority, and that's the only way they, they really can survive is a rhetorical stand. And um, probably what will happen is it will divide the conservative vote, which might keep the, the liberals in office, which Glenn wins again because that's yeah. how he's going to play. Yeah, that's a distinct possibility. I think you're right about that. All right. Well, it's been fun to talk to you about uh, Glenn Beck. We'll keep our eye on him and see if he really does declare himself to be the next new messiah. Yeah, yep, coming up this summer. Thanks so much uh, for your time. It's been, it's been great being here. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. As always, the discussion continues on our website at mormonexpression.com. You can call and leave us a message at 801-906-6722 or send us a message at mail at mormonexpression.com. <laughs>